0: morning friends so happy you're here today I uh, pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would be able to encourage your hearts Um, well he's able to I just hope he will uh, encourage your hearts today as we open his word together and um, see what see what he has for us This is why we come to worship together, isn't it? That the Lord will uh, do a work in our hearts and give us a fresh glimpse of who He is and, and His love for us. As you know, we're taking a second pass through the last three chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And we're doing this so that we can dig a little deeper into the wonderful theology that comes from understanding spiritual gems that seem to be just below the surface that We weren't able to cover the first time through just because um, we were on an agenda, right? We had to get to Easter and Mark 16, so we flew through them the first time through, and hopefully the second time through will will be a a little deeper dive, and I think it's going to be a great encouragement um, to you uh, as we uncover some of these gems that are there and pick them up and really hold them up to the light of Scripture and turn them, and see all the glory that that is there. One of the elements in doing a theological study of a topic like theology of the cross, for example, uh, is the systematic nature of the study. And what that means is we're gonna be taking theological hints from Mark and chase them down in different areas of scripture. And this isn't your typical expositional sermon series on a book of the Bible, we did that the first time through. Uh, This is a theology, in in this case, a theology of the cross revealed by Mark. For example, the brazen altar uh, in the tabernacle isn't directly mentioned by Mark, but it was a dominating piece of furniture, right, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and it is central to the Passover, the Passover feast. And Mark does mention the Passover in chapter 14, verse one, and we spent time there last week uh, unpacking that a bit, not nearly to its exhaustion, that's impossible, but at least somewhat to to encourage your hearts and help you um, grow in faith a little bit. But there is no way, considering the brazen altar, there's no way to enter the temple courts without passing by this dominating piece of furniture, this altar where they sacrificed the animals on. You just couldn't enter without passing by it. It was put there intentionally by God for that purpose. So that you had to consider what was taking place in that place in relation to your relationship with God. Um, which we, which we see the parallel in in the cross of Christ, right? There's no way into a relationship with God without passing by the work of Christ on Calvary, right? The, the, the cross is parallel to the brazen altar. The, the Lamb of God on the cross was pictured by the lambs that were sacrificed on the altar. And so these things jump out at us as we start digging a little bit below the surface and they're intended to bring our hearts to worship and praise and, and make our gatherings on Sunday morning uh, more joyful and f- more full of thanksgiving. So <clears throat> this is what we're looking at, the theology of the cross in our second pass through here in today's story. Uh, is in Mark chapter 14, so if you have your Bibles open, I want you to turn there with me if you would, Mark chapter 14 verses 3 through 9, and this is Mark's theological focus for us at the beginning of Passover week. Now if there's a significant week in the life of Christ, it's the Passover week, and if there's a significant set of scriptures in the gospel of Mark or any gospel, it's the Passion Week. Right? It's that Passover week of Christ's sacrifice. So I want to read this for you, and you'll notice the parallels that, that we just heard read from the Gospel of Luke. All right. So Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9, I want you to look for theological markers here. Okay? And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor and they scolded her. But who scolded her? The disciples scolded her. And so uh, the story here is included in this section um, because it's theologically connected to the death of Christ on the cross. This is why Mark included it here. The the apostle John records this same story, but he, he said it happened six days before the Passover. Mark pulls that out of history and plants it right here at the beginning of Passover week to identify something important theologically. And by the way, that happens a lot in scripture. There's markers that take place in scripture that kinda help your antenna go up and and help tell you that something important is happening. And that's the case here. Mark includes it here, why? In order that we can connect it directly to the cross of Christ. This woman's act of worship is connected directly to the cross of Christ. That's why Mark puts it here. Now he leaves it up to us to dig in and find out why. All right? So here's, here's today's uh, important theological truth that I want you to see. Um, here it is. The cross of Christ produces worshipers of Christ. That's not written in your notes, so you might have to use your pen. The cross of Christ produces worshipers of Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you are a worshiper of Christ. If you're not a worshiper of Christ, you're not a follower of Christ. So this idea of worship is critical, isn't it? If we claim to be followers of Jesus, then we'll be worshiping Jesus. So if you look at your life and you can't see worship, then you're not following Jesus. So I want to I unpack this a bit for you, and I'm going to take you down a path to get you back to this very place, that the cross of Christ is producing worshipers of Christ. So let's begin by the, the fact that God is, in fact, seeking worshipers. God is seeking worshipers. He, Jesus comes out and says this plainly in John chapter 4 verse 23. Jesus is saying, "The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him." God is seeking worshipers. The creation was an overflow of God's loving goodness. This is what the Bible teaches us. And in a muted way, children are an illustration of the overflow of love, right? Follow me. When two people come together in love and affection, children are often the result. In a similar way, the creation is a result of God's loving goodness. It's an overflow of God's abundant loving character. The creation flowed out of him. As natural as can be imagined since we are the overflow of God's love we being part of this creation he is interested in communion with us his created beings he desires fellowship with all his creation but sin has interrupted all of this and brought about a separation between God and his creation particularly between God and mankind between God and you and me sin has done this it's interrupted the purpose of creation So, let's let's see how God is seeking worshipers and doing just a little little tracing of this through biblical history. First, in the garden, right? This is where biblical history begins, is in the garden. God was seeking worshipers in the garden with Adam and Eve. Uh, They were created, in fact, to worship. Prior to the sin of Adam and Eve, God and man communed unhindered, uninterrupted, in full worship. Of God by man there was nothing in hindering that worship no sin Isaiah though tells us that our sins separate us from God the story of the fall is a record of that of that separation God is holy and hence cannot mix with unholiness this is what we learn from the story of the fall and we know from human history and from our own experience that sin always hinders, sin always hinders our worship, doesn't it? Have you have you experienced this? How does Sunday mornings go if you are harboring known sin? How does your private worship go if you are harboring known sin? If you're in a fight with your, your spouse, how does Sunday morning worship go for you or your private worship? So we know that, that sin affects our worship with God. So what was God's solution in the garden to this sin problem, the separation problem? Do you remember God's solution in the garden? It was the death of an innocent, wasn't it? Yeah. In his mercy and grace, God had planned the solution to the damage that sin caused. Sacrifice of an innocent was the solution. There must be sacrifice for sin. Sin must be atoned for. Because in His holy justice, God could not just look the other way and brush our sin or Adam and Eve's sin under the rug. Uh, th- there must be justice, and so in the clothing of Adam and Eve, remember they showed up after they sinned in leaves, and uh, it didn't wasn't working well, and so God provided what, the skins of an animal. Where do you get those? Through the sacrifice of an animal. Right? Yes. The sacrifice of an innocent that animal hadn't sinned Adam and Eve sinned so the solution God ordained has been since before creation was the death of an innocent in his justice and mercy now this might be a little difficult but I want you to follow me because it's an important part of the story in his justice and mercy God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden we can understand the justice side of that can't we they did wrong, they were they rebelled, so he kicked them out. But I said justice and mercy. How was kicking them out of the garden an act of mercy? Was it? Of grace? Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Think with me. What became possible outside the garden that wasn't possible in the garden? Death. Right? And how is sin atoned for? The death of an innocent. The only way that Adam and Eve could have had their sins forgiven, the only way that you and I can have our sins forgiven, is if Adam and Eve were booted out of the garden and and death entered the human race. How would it go for you if Jesus was unable to die? No forgiveness, right? We read this all over Scripture. There is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood, the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews 9.22. Death was required. And so it was an act of mercy and grace that God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. So that we could have our sins forgiven. This is good news. Sacrifice of the innocent became possible. Reconciliation became possible. Our sins could be, in fact, atoned for this took place in the garden god was seeking worshipers we also see god seeking worshipers with the patriarchs <clears throat> remember abram he called abram out of the city of ur why because abram was such a good guy no abram was an idolater god was seeking worshipers and so he called the first patriarch abram which who became abraham out of the city of Ur. And he turned this one idolater into an authentic worshiper. He no longer worshipped at the feet of idols, he worshipped at the feet of the living God. And this turned into God taking a whole nation and turning them into worshipers, which is where we go next in the tabernacle. God dwelt with the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, in the tent of meeting. That's what it was called. Why was it called a Tent of Meeting? It's because where God met with his people in the holy place, in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant. Why did he do this? Because he's seeking worshipers. God was teaching Israel how to worship in the Old Testament, particularly in the desert wanderings, in the tabernacle. Every element of the tabernacle is designed to bring about worship of God's people even the, the the tent stakes literally were designed in such a way to bring about the worship of God's people. And then finally as I'm tracing through history here the fact that God is seeking has always been seeking worshipers. We see this in the church from Pentecost onward. In John chapter 1 verse 14 he says That the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is actually a translation of the word tabernacle. The Word of God, that is, the second person of the Godhead, took on flesh and tabernacled with us, the human race. He became one of us. He took on flesh and blood. Why? So that he could die, so that sins could be atoned for. So that worship could happen. So, when God dwells with people, they experience Him in a real and profound way. Paul clarifies this when he says that the new and current temple of God is what? Is it a building? It's our hearts, isn't it? Yeah. And so, when we experience God indwelling us as His people, We worship him because we can't help it. A true encounter with God always results in worship. God is seeking worshipers, and he began doing this with Adam and Eve. And he will continue doing it until the last human is born. And God is seeking worshipers not because he needs a creature to build up his ego but because God is a loving, giving, need-meeting God, and when God does that for people, their natural response is worship. We also read that God wants us to glorify him, right? It's all over scripture. He's not gonna share his glory with anyone. Glorify the Lord your God and none other. And then 1 Corinthians ten thirty one: 31, and everything you do, whether you eat or you drink, do all to the glory of God. So we're called to worship him, we're called to glorify him. So why does God want us to make so much of him, worship him? Why this intense focus? If I were to say to you that I'm seeking worshipers, it would be an obvious problem, wouldn't it? So why do we sit here and accept the fact that God, the one we worship, is demanding, commanding that we worship him, that we glorify him? Sounds a little egotistical to us, especially in our day, in our culture. Well, listen, God commands this worship, this glorification of him from us, because if we aren't glorifying him, who are we glorifying? Ourselves. God commands this of us because if we're not glorifying him, we're glorifying us. If we don't worship him, we will find something less worthy to worship. This is called idolatry. These things, glorifying self and idolatry, always destroy the creature. Always. And God loves us so much not to want us to destroy ourselves. When we focus on making much of ourselves, which what it means to glorify self, We become obsessed with making sure that we are exalted above all those around us. In our selfishness, we increasingly demand our own way and lash out if we don't get it, just like an infant or toddler. Not glorifying and worshiping God ruins everything, including including human relationships. So if a creature worships anything other than its creator, it becomes increasingly dysfunctional. The creature is no longer fulfilling the purpose for which it was created. Our creator is loving and good and doesn't want us to get sucked into this lethal vortex of self-love or creature worship. So he commands us to glorify him and worship him. This is a command for our good. Does he need your glory or does he need your worship? Absolutely not. This is a gift from God to you and I that we worship him and get our eyes off ourselves. If all we do is look inward, we destroy ourselves, we destroy one another. Worship is a gift from God. In our story today in Mark chapter 14, then I read for you, verses three through nine. The setting is in the home of Simon the leper. Did you notice that? Nothing else is said about Simon. Commentators surmise that this man was one of the followers of Jesus who he had healed, healed of leprosy. But they're uncertain. Uh, the lady who came up to Jesus in this story is an anonymous lady in Mark's Gospel. Mark's point of including this story at this place in his gospel, remember entering Passion Week, uh, is to powerfully communicate that the cross of Christ produces worshipers of Christ. That's why it's included here, even though it happened six days before. Mark includes it here, because this story is a great way to begin Passion Week because it shows us that the cross of Christ produces worshipers of Christ, and I'm about ready to explain how, all right? So let's look at the second point. The cross demonstrates God's love. Why are we drawn to a cross? Why are we wearing crosses as jewelry? Why do we like pictures of crosses? Why do we have pictures of crosses? What is a cross? It's an instrument of death. Why don't we carry around trinkets of like, uh, let's say, uh, an electric chair? Or, I don't know, choose your death, a guillotine. Why don't we have these little trinkets hanging around our necks? Well, I, I have an idea. The, the cross is an emblem of death, and yet it surprisingly reminds us, either consciously or subconsciously, of a God who is interested in reconciliation. Even those of us who don't believe that there is a God wear crosses. It's either conscious or subconscious understanding that behind the cross is the story of a loving God who wants reconciliation with his creation. That's my argument against, part of my argument against atheism. But listen to this God's love demonstrated on the cross is for undeserving people. If you deserve Christ's death on the cross, it's not for you. If you don't deserve the work of Christ on Calvary, then it's for you. I've said this before, Christ dies only for sinners. Right? this is the point, at least part of Mark's point, in this section of Scripture. The woman who approached Jesus in our story was thankful for something. She was acting extravagantly for some reason, right? Why was she worshiping Jesus at, at this level of intensity? She worshiped Jesus because of all that he had done for her, and she understood without a shadow of a doubt that she was an undeserving recipient of his grace and mercy. That's the only explanation that works for why she was doing what she was doing. When God seeks worshipers, he finds them and gives them a reason to worship him. She didn't fully understand the cross at this point, not many people did, but she knew that Jesus loved her unconditionally and was able to solve the sinful chaos of her life and he had done so. Jesus is the one for us here in this passage that connects the dots for us when he mentions that she did this in preparation for his burial. Jesus clarifies that point. Jesus' point was that her act of sacrificial worship was, in fact, directly connected to his death on the cross. That's what Jesus said in the text in front of you. Verse 8, Mark fourteen eight. So... First of all, as we consider how the cross demonstrates God's love, is for it, that God's love is for the undeserving, and secondly, God's love is for his enemies. Here's another thing that's required in order to experience the love and mercy, and grace of God you must be an enemy of God. He doesn't save anybody, anybody but enemies. There's no allies that are going to be in heaven, they're all past enemies. Now, I think, of course, the cross is beautiful from every direction. I was considering this during our time of singing earlier and, and the prayers and the scripture that was read. But for the sake of this sermon, here is where the cross becomes beautiful. God's love for his enemies. Look, listen to these verses from Romans 5, verses 8 and 10. If this doesn't excite some worship in you. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Sinners, enemies, only people saved. So do you want a reason to worship God? Do you want someone to explain to you why you ought to worship God? Here it is. God loves undeserving rebels. God died for undeserving rebels. Remember, God is seeking worshipers. And he died for undeserving rebels in order to win worshipers. In order to give you a reason to come joyfully, expectantly every Sunday and worship. And not just on Sunday, <laughs> throughout every single day of the week. Now, here's a side note, and this is not in your bulletin, and I don't have time to go to the passage, but if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, maybe you'll write this text down and you can follow it up later on your own. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and forward, you will notice that the cross also demonstrates the power of God and the wisdom of God. Besides the fact that it shows that God draws worshipers through those he saves, the undeserving rebels. But it also draws sinners because of its power, the cross, the power of the cross. And there's wisdom in that, evidently that doesn't seem to line up with the wisdom of the world, according to 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and forward. All this is is said in scripture to communicate to us that God seeks worshipers, which takes us to our final point, God loves or God's love creates worshipers. God is seeking worshipers, God's love is demonstrated on the cross and then here, God's love creates worshipers. God's love is what woos people to himself. What would you to Christ? Sure, it's possible to be scared to Jesus because of threats of eternal hell. But, but what wins the hearts and the worship of the vast majority of Jesus' followers is his great and tender love and mercy. That's why the woman was here weeping and, and spending an enormous amount of money pouring out rare ointment on Jesus. You can tell if you've tru- you truly understand the grace of God by how you respond to it. If you, don't, if you have a whole hum response to the grace of God, you don't understand the grace of God. If your worship is, is mediocre or boring... Then you don't understand the grace and mercy of God. You don't understand what He has done for you. And of course, what does that say to us if we don't understand the gospel? Does God's grace overwhelm you? Does God's grace stir your affections? I'm talking about worship, are you naturally and joyfully drawn to worship the God of your salvation? Here are some biblical examples of people who actually went this route. The notorious sinning woman of Luke 7 that you heard read for you earlier. Jesus saved this notorious sinner, and her response was worship. Luke 7, 47 and 48, I will read for you again. Therefore, Jesus speaking to Simon, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he turned and said to her, Your sins are forgiven. She, her, her response, her overwhelming response of worship was because she had been forgiven of her sins. And how is Jesus able to forgive sins other than Calvary? He's not. Jesus needs Calvary to forgive your sins, which is why he could forgive this woman's sin in Luke seven. Then the story that is in our text today, same thing. John, the the uh, apostle John, tells this same story. Said it happened six days earlier, but John identifies her as Mary, this woman who was uh, pouring out expensive. Nard. This was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Next biblical example, Paul. The apostle Paul calls himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. And then he said in the very next breath, received mercy. Why? Why did Paul, the guy who murdered Christians, receive mercy because God is seeking worshipers that's why Paul had great reason to worship his sins were forgiven (laughs) Abraham mentioned him earlier an idolater enemy of God God loved him chose him drew him and Abraham responded in a life of faithfulness and worship This is what the grace of God does for people. If they experience it, their heart response is worship. The cross of Christ creates worshipers. How else are you going to respond to the goodness of God? Thank you, see you next week. No. (laughs) There's got to be some affection in, in, in our worship, which is why we exhort you regularly you know, to sing loudly, whether you're a good singer or not, to, to pray with us, to, to consider the work of Christ on your behalf when we gather. So, and this is what Jesus was saying in verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this lady has done will be told in memory of her. Notice. You don't rem- Mark doesn't tell us who she is. You remember that guy down at the store, he said this and did that. Yeah, that Okay, what's his name? I don't know, but he did this and that. We remember the act, not the name. This is why Mark didn't mention her name. He wants you to remember her act of worship. Because of what the work of Christ meant to her, she responded in worship. doesn't matter who she is. What matters is how she responded. The effect that the cross had on her heart. So secondly, so we're talking about here, the final point, God love, God's love creates worshipers and biblical examples I've just, just given you. Now let's look at the effects of genuine worship. And this is where I'm hoping that you're still conscious um, and paying attention, I want you to hear the, this is application of all these things if there hasn't been sufficient. The effects of genuine worship. Our worship will seem unwise which is why I repeated the fact that the disciples were the ones who were getting after this woman for being so extravagant in her worship. Our worship will seem unwise. Even other committed disciples may question actions born out of a worshiping heart. It says they were indignant, in fact. They couldn't believe it. What a waste of money. Really? There's a hard heart for you. And these were the 11 remaining disciples. The apostles, <laughs> the foundation of the church, these guys. Our worship will seem, seem unwise to some, even in the church. And here, secondly, our worship will be costly. Sacrificial would be another word for that. The pure nard that the woman poured on Jesus was very expensive, imported from India, um, in today's value, somewhere between thirty and forty thousand dollars, what she spent in that process—some of us would be indignant, wouldn't we? Now, what? <laughs> That's a lot to give to a missionary. That's a lot to give to the church. What? We might be indignant ourselves. Romans 12, 1 gives us a spiritual slash practical application of this. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. What mercies of God? Everything involved in the gospel, including the death of Christ on the cross for your sins to be forgiven. I appeal to you, brothers, by the work of Christ to present your bodies as a living sacrifice A costly gift. Give yourselves, Paul is saying. Give yourselves as a sacrifice. This is holy and acceptable to God. This is spiritual worship. Friends, a heart affected by the love of God will worship God in a costly way, they will give of themselves. Finances are secondary. I mean, finances are relative. 40,000 to some of you is peanuts. But if we ask to give yourself, that's a different conversation, isn't it? Yeah. What cost am I talking about? What cost is Paul talking about? What cost, is Mark connecting to a heart response to the cross. What, what, what costs does God want us to consider? Well, resources, of course. Financial, like financial things. Paul, in fact, in Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, talks about this in detail and, and was overwhelmed with the the abundance of giving that the Corinthian church gave for the missionary efforts in Macedonia, which is an example to us. So resources is one thing. It's going to cost us resources. Part of our worship will be giving, financially giving. How much do you give? Can we look at what you give and determine that you are overjoyed with what Christ has done for you, or would we say with Jesus to Simon, he who is forgiven little, forgiven live a loves little. That's what Jesus was talking about. <laughs> now I'm going to say something that some of you may recoil at, but this theology of the cross demands it. Worship is something that engulfs the entire life. If your worship only consists of what happens in this room on Sunday morning, you're not a worshiper. Sorry to tell you. If this is it, if this is the extent of your worship, you're not a worshiper. Go to the book and study what it means to be a worshiper. When we have a genuine encounter with Christ, he becomes everything to us. Not a pittance. He ascends the throne of our lives and rules everything from that vantage point. This means he rules over your vocation, your hobbies, your leisure, your family. Yes, your family. Your job cannot take priority over your walk with Christ, over your worship of Christ. It can't interrupt it. Your hobbies nor your leisure can take priority over your worship of God. If it does, you're not a worshiper. Now, here's the hard one as if these others aren't difficult. Your family cannot be in the place in your heart that only your Savior should hold. Yeah, not those sweet little kids, not your spouse, not your parents. So how does this flesh out? We must require certain things of these secondary things. If we've been truly won over by Jesus and his love, our jobs, finances, hobby, leisure, and family will always take a second place. Now, there'll be times where you fail like every Christian, and these get out of order, but you you Run to Jesus. You run back to the cross in repentance, don't you? If you're truly a worshiper. Now, I will try to walk this line carefully so as not to come across legalistic because I hate legalism and what it does to God's well intentioned people. Your relationship with God is wrapped up in the church. You are not an independent Christian, it is not you and Jesus. You cannot exist in Christ as a parachurch Christian. Jesus has placed his church in your life and you in his church. This is ordained by God. And he does this to guide you and protect you against spiritual drifting, against focusing on yourself. So he places you in a body a spiritual body called the church under the spiritual authority and under the direction of the leaders of that church you attend. And so to view the church as voluntary, a voluntary addendum to your life is lethal to your spiritual life. So choose your church well. The job of the church is to build up the saints, to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and exhort and confront when that isn't happening. That's why you must be a part of a church, a committed part. If God is seeking worshipers, what does he do when he gets them? Say, thanks? No, he puts them in a church family. That's what he does. He incorporates them into the body of Christ, into local churches, so that they can help others and others can help them in their walk of daily worship. God is seeking worshipers. Are you one of them? If so, it'll be evident. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, this is the point where we come to confession after talking about the theology of the cross and what, what is in play. We can't help but feel inadequate, feel guilty for wrong priorities. And so we run to the only place that true believers can run which is to the cross of our loving savior who died to bring in worshipers into his family. We're so thankful. Our hearts exult in this work that Christ has done for us, that we can know the forgiveness of sins, that we can, that we can be reconciled with our creator, that we can be worshipers of the only worthy, thing to worship, worthy being to worship. You, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.